I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce our next guest, Allison Flowers, an award-winning investigative journalist and producer whose seven-part podcast series, Somebody, about the 2016 murder of Courtney Copeland has been receiving numerous and well-deserved awards and accolades for its, its disruption of the true crime genre. Allison is the director of investigations at Invisible Institute, a production company on the south side of Chicago that equips and empowers citizens to act and hold public institutions accountable. And somebody is an exemplar of that work. It follows Shapiral Wells, a grieving mother who's driven to find out what happened to her son. I don't want to give too much away. I don't want to give any spoilers. It is well worth the investment and Allison's and, and the Invisible Institute's ability to tell this story uh, is beyond inspiring. Allison has appeared in The Guardian, Time, The Village Voice, Vice, The Intercept, Daily Beast, Chicago Reader, and is a two-time winner of the Hillman Foundation Sydney Award. In 2019, she co-produced Showtime's documentary, 16 Shots, The Police Killing of Laquan McDonald, and is the author of Exoneree Diaries, The Fight for Innocence, Independence, and Identity on Haymarket Books in 2016. We sat down with Allison to talk about the ability to disrupt the true crime genre, why the genre itself is so compelling to so many of us, what it means to have a uh, an impacted individual who's the primary narrative or narrator of this story, and what Invisible Institute represents for the future of journalism. So uh, I'm ecstatic that we were able to nail down a time and get Allison in here to have this conversation. And I think you will be as, as taken with her as I am. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and pass the mic to Allison Flowers for a very compelling conversation. Allison, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. Well, that's really great. Uh, Josh and I have been looking forward to this. Um, I love to start from the very beginning. And so tell us about being born and raised in Colorado. Well, I was actually born in the UK. Um, my parents oh. were in the military and okay. uh, we moved all over the place until I was about 10. And that's when we settled in Colorado. Um, gotcha. I do consider Colorado home. Um, my parents actually moved away after I finished college. So no one uh, in my immediate family still lives there. Um, but, you know, it's hard to erase your connection to a place. I went to uh, high school and college in Denver. Um, gotcha. So I and I haven't even been back since my 10 year high school reunion almost 10 years ago. <laughs> well, you've been very busy. So. Understandable. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is a great story of you um, about uh, being a kid and scribbling in a spiral notebook, pretending to be a detective. Was that pre-Colorado or in Colorado? 
That was in Colorado. We had just moved there and we're actually in some temporary housing as we were waiting to move in to our place. And um, we didn't have any of our usual toys or games or uh, comfort objects or anything because everything was packed up. So um, I was homeschooled at the time. So I did have paper and pen. (laughs) So I guess it was as a result of being pretty bored or something or having to make up our own stuff to play with. But um, I remember just kind of going around the, the hotel complex and solving fake mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. Inventive Allison. Um, if you had to think about experiences you went through in your youth, were was there a theme of um, seeing injustice or wrongful accusation, which has become such a big part of your work or just the affinity towards crime? Was there uh, like, what do you think may have inspired that or led to that television show perhaps a storybook well we weren't allowed to watch a lot of television um and i was raised in a uh pretty evangelical household i already mentioned the homeschooling which is kind of you know classic uh classic evangelical behavior um but i do think that it was a uh a very values driven upbringing, um, very discernible categories of right, wrong, just, unjust, unjust, and uh, being sort of laser focused on those categories. And obviously, as you get older, those things blur and your your sense of what uh, an injustice is might shift. And I think for me, that was certainly the case. Um, I think regardless of whether I was sort of in this um, you know, very Bible focused uh, Christian camp of my youth or where I am today, I think a, a uh, focus on marginalized communities, uh, trauma um, and and human rights abuses has always been something that I've gravitated towards and and, you know, really lost sleep over from a very from a very young age. Um, I remember those um, sponsor a child commercials uh, that were pretty prevalent in the 80s. And I was just a kid myself. I think I was watching TNT or something like that, uh, a a musical that was authorized (laughs) TV. (laughs) And um, I was probably four or five, maybe. And I remember seeing that commercial and asking my mom if I could sponsor a child. Um, And I think from that you know, that was really sort of like the, the, the first visual cue or one of the first visual cues I had that, um, there was, you know, an abundance in some areas of the world and a lack in others. Um, and that some people had more than what they needed and other people didn't have enough. And then, you know, we always lived in suburbs. And so when we moved to Denver, um, although we were still in a suburb of Denver, when we first moved in, we were sort of in that temporary housing place I mentioned, and it was uh, more in the city. And that was the first time I ever saw homelessness. And I was shocked, (laughs) disturbed, could not sleep. Um, and I, you know, to this day, I can still remember the the face staring back at me. Um, mm. And, you know, you, you have to kind of find whatever power you have, um, which is a process of discovery, I think, but figuring out what power I had um, in this world to, uh, to work and address those 
human rights abuses. Um, you know, I have a lot of privilege, um, which I've come to understand over time. Um, but I think it is up to all of us to deploy whatever resources and power we have as citizens and as journalists, in my case, um, to uh, or demand redress of these human rights abuses that are in our midst. And a lot of my work has you know, focused on unconstitutional policing, wrongful conviction. Um, that's been you know, a particular focus of mine um, that I've been lucky enough to, to report on and for people to have entrusted me with those stories. It's phenomenal. Um, that notion of the power to address human rights injustices, um, clearly you've done an amazing job in your career illuminating them. Uh, but I'm just curious in your youth, maybe in, in Denver in high school or college, were there some activist uh, roles you took on or maybe wrote uh, for school newspaper to highlight that? I was a late bloomer when it came to journalism. I didn't study it in high school, even though we had a school newspaper. I didn't study it in college. Um, I've never considered myself an activist, although that's something that I, I wonder about if um, if what the implications of not being an activist are um, or if we should all in some way. Um, activate around things that matter in some way. And, and like I said, use the power that we have. Um, any any area of my life where I may have uh, had the trappings of an activist are, are ones that I'm not proud of before uh, I kind of turned a corner on some, some critical social issues. <laughs> so... <laughs> tend to try and forget those ones. <laughs> gotcha. Well, uh, share with us uh, about your college experience, what you were drawn to, and then um, post-college and uh, uh, leading up to the first magazine article that you wrote. So in college, I went to a Jesuit uh, university in Denver, Regis University. Um, that was really uh, powerful for me in terms of the focus on social justice as um, a pillar of the curriculum of the entire uh, Jesuit education system. Um, and so it really was infused in all of my classes, um, which opened my eyes to, to different ways of viewing the world. And uh, um, I also appreciated the uh, inclusion that I felt the the Jesuits had um, in the way that they viewed um, others. Um, I was only at Regis for two years. In between my freshman and senior year, I lived in France, uh, which was very formative. I took a leave of absence from college and moved to Paris. And when I got there, I um, enrolled in classes at the Sorbonne and did a sort of a mini degree program. I got two certificates in French language and civilization. Um, and that was also a profound experience for me because for the first time I was um, a minority of sorts and that I didn't speak the language that uh, the class was being taught in. Um, and it wasn't like I was one of a lot of Americans um, or even uh, white students at the Sorbonne. Um, I was with international students. And so it was uh, extremely diverse. French was the common language, not English. Um, and I was pretty <laughs> bad at it. Uh, I'm not like a strong auditory learner. Um, and so it, 
learning another language was really challenging for me and continues to be really challenging for me. Um, and so that was sort of like a tiny taste in my own privileged way of what it felt like to be kind of on the other other side of a majority. Um, and so I lived in, in Paris for a year, um, moved back and wrapped up college. Um, my first magazine article well, I, I did publish a little excerpt in uh, Focus on the Family magazine as a as a eleven year old. It was a uh, it was for Father's Day, and it was a little the first writing credit, right? Um, and it was about it actually had a factual error um, where I was explaining why I loved my father. And so I referenced something that was actually kind of distorted in memory. Um, but anyway, and then when I was in college, I got the ball rolling on what would be post-college, my first writing credit as an adult, which was a short story uh, about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict um, and that was in a collection of short fiction that was published in Colorado, uh, featuring Colorado authors. Um, while I was uh, uh, teaching post-college, because my first job was actually teaching French at an all-boys Jesuit high school, um, I was 21 when I started, and some of my oldest students were 18, so it was pretty awkward and, and weird. <laughs> um, of course, as I continued to teach for three years, the age gap widened. And so that became a little less uh, strange, but um, teaching was great because of uh, the, the daily schedule and the summer schedule afforded me extra time to start writing and kind of getting some clips under my belt so that I could apply for grad school to study journalism. Um, it was a, a strange time to be entering the industry when I went to uh, graduate school at Northwestern for journalism at the Medill School. Uh, it was 2008, so right in the heart of the financial crisis and journalism right. changing in a pretty major way. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily the most well-considered move into uh, journalism, but I did think that how much I wanted to write and like telling stories um, that the path of, of journalism to you know, write about things that I felt mattered was sort of a way to exercise that on a daily basis, rather than um, you know writing a short story or a novel or something that would take a long time to come to fruition or to get published. Journalism I saw was a way to be published regularly, daily, monthly, whatever, um, and and to kind of hone a craft and get into a practice rather than um, just sort of a an art. So it's, and, you know, certainly journalism can be, and hopefully is very artful, but for me, it was a way of kind of whipping me into shape. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's fantastic. Love that. Um, just backtracking a little bit. I'm so curious, the impetus to go to Paris, where did that come from? What was the inspiration? Well, I had studied French a little bit in high school with a rotation of teachers, um, had actually started it even earlier than that in my homeschool curriculum. Um, and I had a good friend who moved there the year before I did. And for spring break, my senior year or freshman year of college, I can't remember. Um, it might have been my first year of college. I went out there to visit her over my spring break. And so 
Um, she was about my age and I could kind of see how a life there was possible. I think it would have been too daunting to kind of build the concept from scratch for myself, but I could see where she lived and I could see where she went to school and how she coordinated all her details. And she went through a little nonprofit that helped her get, you know, enrolled in classes and get the IDs and things that she needed. And so I, I thought, well, no, I can do that. And so, (laughs) (laughs) but she gave me a very helpful template to, to copy. No, that's that's fantastic. Um, Allison, everything you've done has received accolades and praise from your peers and, and your audience. Uh, it's clear that uh, you know your passion for what you're doing really comes through. Um, after graduating from Northwestern, how recently did you join Invisible Institute? Um, that actually took some time. So I had my first official job in uh, in news in the Deep South in Georgia. I worked for a TV news station and for a little CBS affiliate there. And that's where um, I am grateful that the online archive no longer exists <laughs> of all of my uh, TV stories. I did work. Were you responsible for taking it down? <laughs> no, I painstakingly uploaded every story I did, which was something like 700 stories over the course of my contract. And when you're in TV news, you're responsible for turning a story every single day. So you can't wait until a source is ready to talk. You got to find somebody else who's willing to talk, which in some ways degrades the quality of a story because sometimes it's better to wait for the right person to talk to, not the person who's just available. Um, And so, you know, whatever happens, you have to have a story on the air. That is your job, Uh, which was definitely too stressful for uh, for my, uh, I guess, personality or way of being in the world. I I don't like crushing daily deadlines. And so a a, a newsroom is not the ideal place for me, uh, in that way, but I did do a lot of work that I was really, really proud of, you know, um, a great collection. And so I was really happy that I had taken the time at the end of every shift, which usually ended around midnight because I was on the night side to upload my story and write a print version. You know, this is wee hours. And then, um, and then a few years later, after I had left the station, I found out that they had uh, destroyed their own archive um, (laughs) as a way to cut costs. And I would have loved to have like made other copies of my work before they did that. I mean, it does exist on tapes if anyone really wants to go. (laughs) Um, But, and I, I keep telling myself, I need to, you know, contact the station and pull my old stories and get together a little library. Cause I'm sure I'll want to see it someday. Maybe my kids will uh, take an interest in seeing it someday, but um, in any case, director of your documentary biopic will want to see it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But uh, we used to have a joke that if you made a mistake in your story, um, or if something went wrong, uh, often with production, you know, they put the wrong lower third subtitle on the wrong speaker yeah. or it's on later on the video rather than on the speaker. If something goes wrong. We'd always kind of joke and say, well, it's OK. Only two people saw because, you know, it was such a small <laughs> market. Um, it actually was several hundred thousand people and it was connected to Fort Benning, uh, Georgia, mm-hmm. which is a huge military installation. So a lot of big uh, world leaders and uh, 
important people would come there and we would have a front row seat to that and stories. Um, and then we had a like a five county or maybe even a seven county reach uh, that went into Alabama, Auburn University. So um, even though, at, you know, Occasionally, it was a bit of a stretch to make get a story to air every day. Um, most of the time, we were just kind of flying by the seat of our pants and were quite busy, um, you know, doing doing the work. Um, I remember um, one important uh, person came to Auburn University, and I was really proud until recently for having interviewed him um, because he was sort of a, a distinguished person. It seemed. Uh, anyway, Rudy Giuliani <laughs> was the, uh, my, first, my first big interview um, or one of the first big interviews. And, um, you know, that was pretty cool for back then. I mean, I had all this, you know, respect after 9-11 and then just, you know, it's no longer cool to mention. I don't even know why I'm mentioning it now. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that, uh, so I worked in TV news and then after uh, my contract ended in TV news, I went actually back to Northwestern to work at the Innocence Project, uh, which is no longer there at the Medill School, um, but for a long time it had been at the forefront of the Innocence Movement, um, it was one of the organizations that played a role in uh, the moratorium and eventual elimination of the death penalty in Illinois and was responsible for many exonerations. So uh, when I had the chance to go work for that organization, um, I, I definitely uh, left to do so. What, when I was working in TV news in Georgia, the stories that most interested me were, um, were the crime stories or the, um, the narratives involving, you know, some sort of injustice having occurred. I got really sucked into these serial murders, um, where, you know, for, for some people in the community, they very much believed that the man accused of them, uh, was wrongly convicted and it kind of crystallized for me because he had, been on death row for so long, uh, just to like kind of uh, distill it. He was a, a black man accused of uh, the serial rapes and murders of elderly white uh, affluent women in Columbus, Georgia, where I was working. And there was a lot of questionable evidence, um, questionable police practices around his so-called confession. Um, and a well-esteemed journalist named David Rose in the UK had actually written a book about, um, about the case that I found really compelling. And so while I was in Georgia, that case was kind of coming up again um, and he was uh, facing execution. And, you know, as a journalist, you know, it really paints the stakes for you pretty clearly that you don't typically feel in other stories that you do. But for me, it was, you know, I, um, I was very invested in in telling uh, sort of, I guess, alternative narratives about that case, you know, right. it was pretty enshrined in the Columbus uh, mindset that he had done this. And, um, you know, um, anyway, so I was, I was um, reporting that out as he was facing execution and appealing to the board of pardons and paroles for clemency. And um, there was a, a tip from his lawyer and a DNA expert, actually the same DNA expert who worked on the Amanda Knox case, Greg Hampikian, and they had received a tip that there might be evidence in the police department basement. Um, and so they kind of gave me a little excuse for the day. 
And um, I was there as they emerged from the police department basement with boxes. And they said, yeah, there's some stuff that would be useful here. And he was, you know, I think weeks or if not days away from his execution, his scheduled execution, I should say. So um, the Georgia Board of Pardons and Paroles didn't uh, care that there was, uh, you know, viable material for testing. The lower courts didn't care. They didn't um, intervene. And so everything was going to go um, as scheduled. And so I was driving out to Jackson uh, prison in Georgia, which is where Troy Davis was, uh, executed. And I think we were about halfway there, me and the photographer. And that's when we got a call from, um, the Georgia Supreme court, um, communications person saying that they had stayed the execution and that they would force the lower court to have um, a hearing to at least consider whether or not to test the material. Um, What happened afterwards was a long saga, but for me in that moment, it became really clear um, that telling that story, putting a little bit of extra pressure on the situation that, Hey, there was uh, material that could be tested, that could be useful, and that we should at least explore that before sending someone to their death um, made me feel like I, I could play a small role in uh, upholding the truth in a case. Um, of course, his lawyer and others were much more influential than I was in that moment. But it was, you know, I do I do think that it played a small role. Um, you know, what happened later in that case, it was a lot of twists and turns. They did test it. It was sort of confusing mixed results, contaminated results, lots of claims of uh, corruption and and so forth. And um, more material tested that showed it wasn't him. And how could it be him in some cases, but not in others? And anyway, it got very, very messy. Um, and a few years ago, he actually was executed. Um, it was sort of a, a strange moment for me because I always thought that he would kind of just beat it, you know, he would always like beat the next scheduled execution because he had come within, you know, minutes of it so many times over probably his more than 20, if not 30 year incarceration. Um, But, you know, regardless of some of the questionable evidence, he was, he was executed. Um, You know, my work at the Innocence Project that I eventually moved into um, we weren't dealing with death penalty cases because we focused in Illinois and, the death penalty at that point had been uh, eliminated in Illinois. But where we did start to uh, focus was around, you know, the questionable science or the bad science in a lot of cases, but also the role that policing plays in wrongful conviction cases. Um, And so that has sort of been the nexus of the, the next stage of my career. And I did some independent reporting on uh, exonerated uh, individuals in Illinois that kind of uh, put a magnifying glass on the lack of infrastructure for people leaving prison after a long incarceration for something that they were innocent of. You know, I remember at the time kind of feeling like it was unfair that um, that people who had actually committed a crime would have a lot of resources leaving prison, whereas people who had been innocent of a crime would have no resources. Um, you know, now I think that the plight of people who've been wrongly convicted just kind of 
uh, highlights the injustices of the system itself, of mass incarceration, of, you know, the entire inhumanity um, and, and crazy making really of that entire system, you know, whether you committed a crime or not. Um, I, I heard a lawyer say the other day that there's no such thing as a uh, or every conviction is a wrongful conviction. And I do think that there is some truth in that, um, you know, in that, you know, prison is, is just not a not a place really to send anyone um, in terms of how we deal with justice. I think yeah. those things kind of come uh, become clear when you're when you're you know teaching your kids. I have a four year old now who's uh, very interested in. Uh, and all of these things and has heard words like jail and crime, superhero <laughs> narratives and that type of thing. And so I'm doing my best to um, to kind of correct those or adjust those as as they ramp up in his uh, imagination. But yeah. no Paw Patrol, no Paw Patrol. Yeah, that one's, that one's I, I, I really, I really try there. And also you don't want to make it too taboo because then they're going to want, want it more. Yeah. But, you know, what um, I tell him is like people don't belong in cages, you know, not that there shouldn't be justice or shouldn't be consequences, but um, you know, you're not supposed to put people in cages. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's like the simplest uh, explanation that I can give him. Yeah. Well, before I hand it off to Josh to talk about some of these other amazing projects you've been involved with, I just want to say uh, you call it a small contribution, but I think it's significant. Drawing attention to issues and problems is such a an important role um, and that forces uh, people to to take it seriously. And I think it played a significant part in the Georgia Supreme Court's decision. So kudos on that. Thank you. Yeah. And I would uh, thank you, Asim, and for uh, passing the time. And I think just listening to you, your, you know, your entire kind of Oh, go ahead. Maybe just for the editing purpose, start from thank you. So you're passing the baton so it's clear, <laughs> clean. Sorry about that. No, 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 no worries. Um, thank you. Thank you, Asim, for kind of passing the baton and everything. And, uh, you know, Allison, I think it's fascinating to kind of hear your career and and just sort of the, the trends of like, you know, your your career is so fascinating in the sense that it also like, maps so well onto sort of public opinion and public narrative um, as it's sort of shifted and, and, and you know, your awakenings kind of um, seem to be like a, a little bit ahead of you know, the awakenings of, of like the mass public and mass movements and everything. Um, but I, I want to get into somebody because I think, you know, that, that podcast is phenomenal. And I, I, I think I shared with you and the scene, you, you haven't heard of this. Our listeners haven't heard this, but Allison was really generous with her time coaching me when I was thinking about doing a different kind of podcast um, and kind of sat down and met with me back when people met in public and, and, you know, <laughs> about this and walked through everything. And at the time she was planning on doing, you know, the, the podcast, somebody, um, which is, you know, now it's won awards. It's, it's, it's gotten a lot of attention. Um, at the time it was sort of like you, you were working on it, but it was sort of hush hush and you weren't sure what was going to happen with it. Um, and so I, uh, uh, and, and it's funny 
because I just picked it up and started listening to it um, just recently. And I didn't realize that it was Allison's podcast (laughs) (laughs) until like there was a certain moment, I think in like episode two or three. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. (laughs) That's um, phenomenal. such a it's so phenomenal it's it's just amazing and i i definitely would encourage all of our listeners to to download it and to listen to it before we get into that i i really want to kind of go deeper on um invisible institute specifically because i think there's a couple things there one i think their their mission is is fascinating and and two i think it speaks to you know you talked about your experience kind of in going to grad school and kind of going through that and being a weird time for journalism right um but invisible institute in some ways seems to be kind of like cutting a new model um whether it's a a business model or however you want to take it or or this fusion between activism that we were talking about earlier and you know progressive journalism story driven sort of um activism so i'd love to kind of get a little bit into talking about uh, uh invisible institute and just like if 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 you want to kind of tee up and and talk about that first and then we'll get into somebody. Yes. I love talking about Invisible Institute. It's such a unique um, and cool place to work. Uh, The Invisible Institute is a nonprofit journalism production company. So we're not a newsroom. We don't publish daily news. We don't have a publication that is our own. Uh, We do long form projects and we publish with partners. Collaborations um, are definitely uh, a trend in journalism now um, and being rewarded uh, with with journalism awards. So, um, you know, some years back, the Marshall Project and I think either the New York Times or the Washington Post won a Pulitzer together for um, a joint uh, investigation. Um, and so you're just seeing a lot of uh, outlets doing that as resources become more scarce. We're kind of uh, collaborating rather than competing. Mm-hmm. And so the Invisible Institute uh, investigates cases and then we publish with partners. Um, but we actually uh, do a lot of different things that kind of make it hard to encapsulate uh, who we are and what we do in a uh, easy messaging branded kind of way. Uh, we're on the south side of Chicago and have actually existed in concept before we, uh, you know, actually formed a nonprofit and uh, got the website and employees and all of that. But uh, we were started by a journalist uh, named Jamie Calvin, uh, who I'm uh, very fortunate to call a colleague and friend. Um, And he was reporting in public housing um, on the south side of Chicago, which has now been uh, destroyed, eliminated and uh, erased. Um, he he was reporting on police abuses and public housing um, for some time, and uh, he created a website called The View from the Ground, which we've resurrected in other ways at the Invisible Institute. But The View from the Ground was where he published uh, multiple series. One was called Kicking the Pigeon about a, a group of abusive officers known as the Skullcap Crew um, and a woman who was uh, sexually assaulted. Um, And when after her sexual assault at the hands of these officers, she went and filed a complaint uh, with the agency at the time that investigated the police, which was across the street from the public housing complex. Um, This 
agency that investigates the police has actually since been uh, eliminated after a scandal and rebranded as a, as a different thing and another scandal and rebranded. Re- so it goes on and on and on to the current iteration of the same agency, which is the civilian uh, oversight of police accountability, something like that. It's called COPA here in Chicago. And so if there's a police shooting or a case of police abuse, um, a citizen can complain to that agency and they should open a case to investigate the misconduct. Um, anyway, because of that one woman's uh, complaint, which later turned into a lawsuit in which they were seeking the disciplinary histories of the officers who assaulted her, um, which were not public at the time in Illinois. Uh, my colleague Jamie sued the city of Chicago to release those records. And they said no. And it turned into this long, twisty, turny seven year lawsuit that eventually culminated in a watershed Illinois appellate court decision that um, that basically said that these records should be public. It should be a matter of public record when an officer has a complaint generated by a citizen against them. or, again, or from another fellow officer against them. And so Jamie got all of these records um, and he developed them into a database of police misconduct for Chicago Police Department. It's called the Citizens Police Data Project. It launched in 2015. And what he wanted to do was not just, um, not just published spreadsheets of the records that he was able to acquire, um, but to make it accessible to the public in a really user-friendly way. And so um, that is how the Invisible Institute uh, kind of first put itself on the map was, uh, was creating and distributing this really useful tool, which is now used by lawyers, journalists, academics, citizens, um, you know, it's so, so powerful. And to sh- just as a quick demonstration of how powerful it is after it launched and, you know, was written up in the New York Times and all these other places within a few weeks, that's when the LaQuan McDonald video came out. Yeah. Jamie was actually influential in telling that story and showing that the police narrative couldn't possibly be true by uh, publishing a story about the autopsy report. So in showing 16 shots of this Chicago teenager, Laquan McDonald, whom Jason Van Dyke shot um, 16 times front and back. Um, Jason Van Dyke's misconduct history is in our database. So as soon as that video came out and was uh, made public when a judge ordered its release, suddenly every reporter could just look up Jason Van Dyke's misconduct history in our database and see that he actually had a a long and uh, undisciplined record of uh, of racist violence. Um, That certainly was an important part of the picture when looking at who is this cop who killed, uh, who executed this Chicago teenager. Um, So the Invisible Institute's been around a long time in in theory and thought in Jamie's uh, mind. Um, The name actually comes from a a quip he made of someone who was upset that he was publishing his his, uh, news site, The View from the Ground, and said, you know, who do you work for? Why are you here? And he said, oh, the Invisible Institute, like it doesn't exist. (laughs) And then the joke is forever on us because- We very much do exist. And um, although we still are sometimes 
you know, elusive and at the same time, you know, uh, quite visible uh, in the work that we do, uh, which spans from investigative reporting, multimedia storytelling, human rights documentation, as you see in the Citizens Police Data Project, which now has a quarter of a million police misconduct complaints in it the largest repository of such records um, that exists. Um, So we we do take very seriously the curation of public information uh, on behalf of citizens, um, because we think that, you know, we have to take a responsibility as citizens with the government to uh, demand that these human rights abuses be addressed. And we can't do that if we don't have the information. And so that creating a database, even though it might not sound like journalism, we think is Um, so essential to where journalism is headed now. Um, So that is the work that we, that we do at the Invisible Institute. We have a very lean crew of about seven or so employees, and we work with a lot of contractors uh, on our projects. Um, And so we had never actually done a podcast before, but you know, podcasting has, has kind of exploded. And so uh, we've been curious, we had been curious, I should say about what it would be like for us to do a podcast when this story sort of fell into our lap. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's a perfect segue. So I would love to, to talk about like the podcast itself. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I find so riveting. I mean, it's, it's, it's compelling storytelling anyway, else, and it's just, it's so well done. But one of the things that to me, thinking in terms of public narratives and shifting public narratives, that's most exciting is how you, you take this, this, this focused story and, you know, sort of, you, you disrupt the entire kind of ubiquitous true crime genre um, just through this, this, you know, this one lens. And so before I you know, tease any more, um, could you give like a quick synopsis for our listeners of what somebody is, is all about, um, what the podcast, and then just sort of like how it came to be? Um okay. Um, so somebody is a seven part podcast series and it features a Chicago mom as she investigates her son's murder. Um, it's actually almost the five year anniversary of his murder. It will be uh, in a few days here. Uh, he was murdered in 2016. And when she learns of his death, she immediately distrusts the official narrative that police are telling her. And she actually grows to suspect police. Um, The circumstances of Courtney's death, her son's name is Courtney Copeland and her name is Shapiro Wells. Um, The circumstances of his death is that he was discovered with a bullet in his back outside a Chicago police station uh, where police say that he flagged them down for help. Um, and then was uh, rushed to an emergency room where he, um, he his heart stopped on the way and they tried to revive him and he died about 45 minutes or so after he was shot. Um, and so that is the story that she was told. And, um, you know, in her very first meeting with detectives, she feels very much like she's being handled, that they won't give her some pieces of information that should be a matter of public record and not anything that should be strange to share with a parent. She wanted to know the names of the officers on the scene who helped her son as they were saying that they had. Um, She wanted to know if there was, uh, if the cameras around the station showed anything because if her son pulled up to the station, surely the the cameras that are, um, uh, you know, 
up on the police station looking yes. down should have captured something. And they're like, oh, you know, those cameras haven't worked in, in decades. They haven't worked since the 80s. Right. Um, and then she said, well, what about that camera over there? And what about that camera over there? And, you know, there should have been many cameras that captured this. The one that's on the school or the street light or the pod cameras that uh, we taxpayers uh, oh, put the bill oh. for um, that are all over the city and many of which do not work as she would later discover. Um, so it turns out that there was video footage of it. And so you would think as a parent, you'd be very eager to see that, which she was, except they wouldn't give it to her. And so they won't give her the names of officers. They won't let her see the footage. They tell her her son was shot in the car, but there's no blood in the car. And so she thinks that's a little odd that maybe this was a traffic stop gone wrong where he was hauled out of the vehicle and shot or something like that. If there's no blood in the car, how could he be shot in the car? Um, and then she comes across something that is uh, extremely disturbing and really ignited her suspicions, which is something the police did not tell her, but she had to discover on her own, which was that her son, Courtney, was handcuffed when he came into the ER. And so if you are a gunshot wound victim and you pull up to the police for help, why would you be handcuffed? And it wasn't in any of the police reports. She discovered it in a paramedics record that described him as being combative and needing to have been handcuffed. And then it was corroborated by the emergency room nurse that he came in handcuffs, not that he was combative, but that he came in handcuffs. And so she confronts the police about it. And, um, you know, at first they, they say, well, where are you seeing that? And then later they see, well, I guess, it's on the paper. It must be true, but it doesn't really matter. You know, we're trying to find out who saw, who uh, murdered your son. And it's like, well, it very much matters because she's uh, she's worried that the police may have shot her son. Um, so after hitting the official wall of secrecy, that's when she reached out to the Invisible Institute. She had heard of us because of the Laquan McDonald case and other work that we had done. And um, she thought, well, if I can't get these videos, maybe some journalists can help me. And so she wrote a note to my colleague, Jamie, uh, dear Mr. Calvin, one night, it was uh, almost to the day of her son's death about a year afterwards. And she had kind of taken the case as far as she felt she could, reached out to us um, within days. Uh, we met with her and look, we, we do get inquiries from a lot of people uh, because there's a lot of injustice in the world and a lack of fairness. And um, there are a lot of victims and survivors of terrible things. And so whether it is the type of case that we would be able to, to practically do anything with or not, we receive a lot of uh, tips um, and we do vet and respond to all inquiries, which is pretty time consuming. Uh, but this is how you kind of, um, you know, shake out the, you know, the stories where there is a, a whistleblower or a situation that, that we can intervene in as journalists and, and do something with. Mm -hmm. And so what struck us about her was that she wasn't over arguing her evidence that she had thus far collected. Right. She had a good command of what she knew, what she didn't know. Um, and of the suspect things in the case, the discrepancies that bothered her. And so as she mapped it out, we were uh, really compelled by her. And we said, you know, we don't know where this is going to go. We don't know what we're going to, you know, where this will lead, but we will join you in your investigation. Right. And so we did. And it took a couple of months of, of pushback for us to get those videos. Um, and after we saw the videos together, 
the case headed in an unexpected direction, I'll say for people who have yet to uh, listen to the podcast. No spoilers, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But what we really wanted to highlight was not necessarily what the police did, but also what they didn't do. And not just how they treated Courtney by handcuffing him, but also how they treated Shapurl, his his mother, a grieving mother. Um, and Shapurl reported her interactions with detectives when she met with them. And she didn't hear from them for uh, almost a year, or I think a little more than a year, uh, from the time they first met days within Courtney's death to uh, a little more than a year later after she contacted us for help and we started poking around and then they contacted her and said, hey, what are you doing? Um, And that got their attention. And so then they met with her again. Um, And the way they speak to her, um, when I say it's shocking, it it actually isn't shocking if you are a person of color to be talked to that way by police. But to other listeners, you know, I think it it can be shocking or at least you're hopeful that, well, at least they won't talk to a murder victim's mom this way. But yet they do. Um, And the other thing that we wanted to highlight was really the indifference, the incompetence of the police in looking at these cases, the solve rate for. Uh, for murders of people of color is is abysmally low in Chicago. The solve rate is low in Chicago anyway, but it's even worse if you're a person of color. Um, and, you know, there's some a lot of ideas as to why that is. Police will say that um, the communities in which gun violence occurs are that the people there are uncooperative in solving cases. Um, but, you know, there I mean, for sure there is a, a lack of trust that might make people not want to cooperate with police, which have long been an occupying force um, in their neighborhoods. Um, but I, I do think that that is kind of a cover for the overall indifference for black lives, uh, the incompetence in solving the, the cases, the lack of care, the disregard. Um, but, you know, we also wanted to highlight how difficult the system is to navigate. We were sort of putting the system on trial, not necessarily the individual actors in this case, um, but how the system is fundamentally unfriendly and opaque to victims of violence and their families. And so people like Shapurl and Courtney Copeland's family just sort of exist in the purgatory of unsolved cases. Um, This isn't like the glamorous cold case files, right? This is this is police have forgotten about you. They're not calling you with updates, or if they do call you with updates, they just say that they have no updates. Um, and that, you know, you really have to check in with them to motivate them to maybe do something, or you have to give them the leads, which Shapiro does. And they overlook, don't acknowledge, um, and they disregard um, when she she gives them very promising leads into potential suspects into the case, um, which, you know, is sort of like a, a full circle thing in the podcast that we we try to unpack. Um, so, you know, it, we're, we're doing a lot with one podcast, but I'll just say for, for all the storytellers out there, there's so much value in just letting a narrative incubate itself. We had the luxury of being able to take our time on this. We couldn't have rushed the answers that we got. Um, We had to kind of uh, let let life take its course. And, you know, we could push and investigate and interview people, which we did. We interviewed uh, dozens of people. The police documented interviews with just uh, 
a handful of people, four or five, maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas we interviewed 30, 40 people. Uh, We knocked on every door we could reach on the street where Courtney was shot. Um, When we talked to people and asked if the police had ever contacted them, they said, no, we found cameras that the police never pulled. They could have possibly been put up later um, after the police did their initial canvas. So we can't know that they were there and and just not considered. But it certainly was not a, a good look for the detectives in this case. We also filed 80 public records requests, um, which is digging for a lot of information from a lot of different angles into the case. Um, And a lot of that was was really revealing and and fruitful. Um, And we also took apart Courtney's car. He drove a late model BMW uh, convertible that he got as a sales reward uh, for his job. And we kind of reprocessed the car. It should have been processed differently and properly in the first place. Um, It was, you know, dark and late and cold when he was shot. And um, the police took pictures and um, collected some evidence. Actually, I have it right here in Ziploc bags at my feet in this box. Um, But and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty sobering to like, you know, see the, the Gatorade bottle and the, the winter glove and all of this stuff. But what they what police should have done was also take when they could take the vehicle into better, uh, well-lit conditions outside, uh, you know, away from the elements um, and really gone through the car kind of every scene to find any uh, any. Um, bullet casings, fragments, that type of thing. Um, Witnesses reported two shots, but only one bullet fragment was found lodged in Courtney's neck. And so the other uh, evidence has been missing. And so we took apart Courtney's car uh, in hopes of finding it. We did have uh, the guidance of a forensics firearms expert. And he told us that, you know, sometimes that type of material can be hiding in car scenes for years. And so we were really hopeful that we might find something. We didn't find anything um, that revelatory. We did find a a kernel of gunpowder that the police didn't process. And perhaps if it had been better formed and there was more material, it could have been um, more conclusive. Um, But it basically just showed um, that, you know, didn't trace to a specific gun. That's not how that works, but it basically showed that it could have been fired by a number of, of guns. So that existing years after years after the uh, murder really told us that, you know, there, there could have been much more physical evidence that could have been found. Yeah, right. um, so, you know, doing the police's work for them is really difficult. You know, we don't have the same tools. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, we might have a little more credibility in talking to witnesses, um, but, you know, it's not it's not for lack of trust that these witnesses didn't talk to police. Um, They would have been very cooperative. They but the police have never contacted them, even after we gave them a roadmap to our evidence that we uh, found in the case over several years. Every time we check in with witnesses to see if the police ever contacted them, they say that they have not. Yeah, yeah. And and wow. it does have, um, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're we're coming close to the, the end of the hour, but. Uh, okay, is that Chime my computer or is it yours? Since we're, this is little interlude oh. to something that's probably going to be cut out. I don't think it's mine. Is it? I don't think it's mine. I don't, it's mine. Is it, is I don't it believe it's mine, no. Okay, all right. I'm not sure how to turn it off because if I turn my volume down, then. 
That's uh, okay. Yeah. We, okay. We have a phenomenal editor. So, <laughs> um, so I what what I what I did. I have like a million questions for you, and and and, but you know, limited time. So, um, I think that the the next segment would just be like you know there there is. Um, let me pause. So, okay. So. There is actually um, uh, somewhat of a, a happy ending, or at least a, a, a direction um, that the, the show actually accomplished. And could you talk a little bit about some of the things that have been achieved with the show um, and some of the things that have happened since since it was launched, since the podcast was launched? Yes. So um, the final episode of our podcast shows... Um, Courtney's mom sort of at the end of her investigation at the end of our investigation, she's taken it as far as she can given evidence to police. Um, and, you know, it, two questions that we were really exploring in the entire podcast was, you know, who shot her son and did police do everything they could to help him. And so I, I think we, uh, we get pretty far in, um, in answering those questions. Um, one thing that Shapiro looks into is um, this practice of scoop and run, which is um, basically where police, when they come across a gunshot wound victim, instead of waiting for an ambulance, which could be critical life-saving minutes, will scoop the victim into uh their patrol car and run them to a nearby hospital. And this is uh, widely practiced in Philadelphia, where um, I think more than half um, of gunshot wound victims come to the ER via patrol cars. Um, and in Chicago, the practice is allowed, just is not part of the culture. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are a lot of things that have happened um, over the course of our investigation in the city. So, for example, the, the Department of Justice, not because of our investigation, but um, over the last several years, the Department of Justice deemed that Chicago police uh, are engaged in a pattern of unconstitutional policing. So they imposed a consent decree where they have to clean up their act across uh, several measures which have been negotiated. And now a judge is forcing the police department to comply with. And so how to render aid when a police officer comes across someone who is hurt is uh, uh, something that we talk about in the podcast. We show how it may have made a difference in Courtney's uh, case and whether he would have survived or not. Um, and so that is something that Shapiral is really focused on uh, changing is uh, getting police departments to a place where uh, it will be culturally reinforced and acceptable to scoop and uh, victims and run them to the hospital and potentially save lives. Um, Since we launched the podcast, um, the Inspector General of Chicago, which is an agency that uh, probes official misconduct, it was the agency who took on the the investigation of the officers in the Laquan McDonald case who conspired and lied. Um, And so they have opened an official investigation into the case, uh, which is, you know, very promising. And we hope that um, it shows, you know, the treatment of Courtney and the treatment of Shapiral and uh, per- perhaps some policy recommendations for um, how officers can behave better in the future. Um, 
and show more regard for, for black lives. Yeah. Fantastic. Allison, I would, I could sit here all day. Incredible. Uh, I would love to see a reality TV show about uh, Invisible Institute. You guys could be like, or a comic book, you know, it kind of has a comic book ring to it. And, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I would, I would, I would be riveted. I think, I think what you and, you know, the whole team there are doing is fantastic. Um, and I love it. Uh, how, how can people learn more about Invisible Institute or learn more about you um, and, and, you know, kind of stay in touch with, with all of the wonderful projects that you're working on and anything that you would like to share with our listeners as well? Sure. Um, so we're at invisible.institute as our website. Uh, that's where you can learn about our uh, projects. And we also have a social media presence that's pretty easy to find. Um, we recently launched something called the Chicago Police Torture Archive, uh, which is sort of a sister site to the other database I mentioned earlier around police right. disciplinary records. This site, the Torture Archive site, actually is the first human rights documentation of the uh, abuse of former Commander John Burge, um, who for people who are not from Chicago, I mean, he's fairly notoriously, infamously known internationally, um, but uh, abused, tortured um, him and a crew that he led and taught, the Midnight Crew, uh, tortured um, somewhere near more than a hundred black people, mostly black men into confessions leading to many wrongful convictions. Um, and that abuse um, was uh, taken on uh, by the People's Law Office. They represented many survivors over many years and created an extensive legal archive. Um, many of these cases contributed to the um, elimination of the death penalty in Illinois as well. And the People's Law Office donated its archive to the Posen Center at the University of Chicago, who asked us to build something that could kind of turn this into an archive that people could understand and explore. And so we created this beautiful archive. Um, it's a very difficult history, of course, to learn about. Um, but we're not just telling the story of the torture. We're also telling the story of the uh, unprecedented reparations that were won for the torture survivors here in Chicago, which was a uh, interracial multi-generational effort of uh, families affected by this abuse, lawyers, journalists, activists, so many citizens coming together um, in this in this really incredible way. And so we try to tell and honor that history as well. Um, but the centerpiece of the site is the survivors, their stories. And so when you visit the site, uh, Chicago Police Torture Archive.com, uh, which is our, our new big project, you can uh, see their faces, you know, immediately on the homepage, click and learn about them, see uh, uh, various ephemera from over the years, pictures, um, and, you know, it's a pretty incredible archive. So I'd point everyone to that as well. And, you know, it really highlights that the uh, that police abuse is not a thing of the past. This isn't a chapter of Chicago's history that is, you know, closed and done with. Uh, this is really something that is ongoing, um, as demonstrated by the Citizens Police Data Project, which um, has this, uh, you know, growing 
body of police disciplinary records. And in a way that we can actually study and learn from, we created a network tool of the officers associated with Burge in those cases and show kind of their their interconnectivity and the cancerous nature of their abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, I would uh, point people in that direction as well. And then of course, somebodypodcast.com, um, you can find the the episodes there. You can also find the episodes on uh, most major podcast platforms. I'm realizing that we didn't really talk about how the subversion of, of true crime. Um, I, I didn't talk about it. <laughs> you probably asked. <laughs> yeah, totally. um, but I do think that the somebody podcast sort of straddles both investigative journalism and true crime, but also subverts both. We actually had not conceived of ourselves in the true crime genre and we're kind of, as producers, not in control of distribution, a little surprised that that's where we got put. Um, But as you listen to the podcast, um, there are uh, some conventions of true crime, you know, the cliffhangers and that type of thing. But it's not um, exploitative because of the way we center the narrative. And so I should say that probably the most important part of the podcast is the fact that it is uh, hosted by Shaprol Wells, by the mother of Courtney Copeland. She tells her own story. And so the way in which we subverted both true crime and investigative journalism was upending the convention that I, as the journalist, should be telling the story about her trauma, right? And so, um, you know, investigative journalism has very uh, extractive tendencies um, that you could argue and has been argued by uh, other smarter people than me that it's rather colonial in how it's mining someone for their story and they're usually their story of trauma. And then you're kind of taking it out of the confines of their lived experience and complexities and just kind of putting it in this other space um, that, you know, is is sort of robbing them of a narrative. It's sort of taking a story rather than helping them tell their story. Um, So we very early on in our podcast production um, asked Shapurl if she would be willing to host this and tell her own story, not knowing how that would go. I mean, it's yeah. in many ways easier just kind of write in your own voice as an investigative journalist yeah. and report it out if, the way you would unspool facts, you know. Um, but we kind of had to like deprogram ourselves from from that tendency and instead be open to a different, somewhat nonlinear narrative as told by the mom. So a lot of the scripting and uh, voicing that you hear is coming from interviews that we did with her, where we, you know, pluck things that she says, stitch them together. And then we're in the audio booth and rewriting as we're going by asking her questions where she is not looking at a script, but rather just sort of speaking freely. And then we kind of bubble it all together, which it can be a little jarring and hard because sometimes people read different than they talk and so forth. Um, So you have to be kind of artful and careful about it, but I think the podcast is so much better for it because um, in the same way that she didn't trust the official narrative and what police were telling her, why would we then report it out by putting so much emphasis and authority on 
official sources and police voices and that type of thing. You know, who gets to tell the story and where is the narrative centered? We really wanted to challenge journalism on those notions and really show how this other way is really possible. It makes a lot of journalists very uncomfortable um, because you're sharing power with a source, right? That's really what it's about is being willing to take the back seat narratively um, and to really compose the show um, by by allowing uh, by or by sharing, I should say, power with your source. And I think journalists sometimes can forget that the stories don't belong to us, right? Yeah. Just because you are writing it doesn't make it yours. Um, and we want to be storytellers, not story takers, which is a nice turn of phrase I heard. Um, heard once um, by someone whose name I can't remember. Um, but no, it's always someone else's story, right? And we're we're just, you know, in a position to help tell it. And I think journalists should be more mindful about considering putting their craft at the service of somebody else's experience. Yeah, yeah, I love Absolutely. that. I love so that. well said. Um, and yeah, that's that's amazing. I. Allison, can you the, the the only thing that was neglected in your your kind of sharing of the materials is you. Um, you have a fantastic website, and so how how can people track all of the remarkable work that you're doing? Okay, well? I um, you can find me at Allison A L I S O N Flowers dot com, um, and um, that's where I try and uh, update folks on, you know, the, my latest work. Uh, and that's where you can contact me as well. I'm also on Twitter at Flowers Allison. Um, and I think those are my only channels. <laughs> okay, perfect. Allison, thank you. Thank you for having me. So it was grateful nice. for the work you do. Cool. Thank you. Awesome. We wish you decibels going forward. <laughs> to see what happens in the coming months. <laughs> as are we. Thank you again. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Josh Grenowitz. I'm your host, along with Asim Geary. Story Matters would like to thank Achieve, Asim's regular podcast, for providing the platform to Story Matters Season 2. We'd also like to thank Jocelyn Salmaron, our extraordinary producer, for all of her research and reporting chops, without which none of these episodes would be possible. Solomon Collins for his editing expertise in making me sound smarter than I actually am. No small feat. And Kitty Overton, our advising producer and the impetus behind the original concept for Story Matters. We'd also like to thank Yasha Hoffman for generously providing our intro-outro music from his song Roots off of the album The Weather, which you can hear in its entirety on our website, along with show notes for every episode at storymatters.site.